My name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at Village Church. Most weeks I have the honor and joy to open up God's word. Today I do again. Um, would you open up in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 6? Genesis chapter 6. Recently I have noticed uh, an unusual theme popping up in evangelicalism, if you will. It started about a few weeks ago. Uh, I was listening to a sermon by um, a pastor of a church in the area. Um, regularly, I'll listen to sermons um, from churches around us, people that I know, buddies of mine, just kind of hear what's going on in their churches. And, and this theme popped itself up in his whole sermon. In fact, the entire sermon was about this, this one theme. And I thought, man, that's, a, that's kind of a strange theme. And then I started uh, looking on Facebook just randomly, and I saw this theme starting to come up. I read an article on it that was just written and posted, and then um, we started to see on social media, and I brought it up to a couple of you, and you sent me some tweets, and then I was like, wow, this is actually getting traction. Um, this is really strange. And, I, and at first, I just really resisted it, but I wanted to think through it because it just kept getting repeated. And so here's the theme, and the theme is addressed to non-Christians, okay? The theme goes like this, non-Christian. God is not angry with you. Let me say it again. Non-Christian, God is not angry with you. So uh, immediately my discernment radars go off and I'm like, hmm, like a whole bunch of scriptures are just going through my brain left and right. And I'm thinking that doesn't feel quite accurate. Um, but then, so I go to our staff and I say, hey guys, what do you think? And a couple of them said, no, 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 something is really off, um, off about this. And here, here's what I've I found, like apologetically, or, or if you're in a conversation with a non-Christian and you want to show them how compelling Jesus is, um, it feels good, doesn't it, to be able to look at somebody and say, it's not that big of a deal, sin is like, uh, it's kind of disrupting your life, but God's not upset, don't worry about it, God's not upset, love, 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 all like hugs and bunnies, right, feels good. I mean, you want to say that, right? But here's my question, is it true? Is it partially true? Is it half true? And then somebody could say, but yeah, God, God loves non-Christians and I can open up scriptures and I can, I guess, that's true, God loves non-Christians. I'm trying to figure this out. And, and I found that with many people, especially those who've never trusted in Christ as they read the Bible, we have this really interesting tendency to make God so simplistic, almost like a child. And here's what it looks like. Um, if God is angry, then God's always ever angry, right? They find an attribute of God and they transfer it to all of the Bible and everywhere. Like if God pours out wrath, right, then God must be always a curmudgeon grandpa, right? And so you get this idea and it's very small and we almost treat God like he's so simplistic, but even you who are less complicated than God, you and I are more complicated than that, aren't we? Let me give you an illustration. Uh, my son, when he was four, punched one of my daughters. Um, not uncommon for, for him as a four-year-old boy. And uh, let, me, let me just like, I'll try to reenact what I said to him so you can kind of get the feeling of the moment, okay? Bro! <laughs> right? And that's my way of saying, you're dead. Um, that's my daughter. Like, I'm trying to raise a son who honors a woman's body and her heart, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, like and this is the, op okay, he's four. Have you ever tried rationalizing with a four-year-old? It's awesome. Totally works every time. And anyway, so uh, I take him aside and immediately, immediately crushes him. So we, we've actually, over the last two years, learned something uh, about my son, and, and we've, we've probably known this, but anger immediately crushes him. Like even a two out of 10 crushes him. Like one of my daughters, if you get angry at her, she's like, hmm, I'll consider your anger, right? Him, he's like, nope, done, tears, like flattened, and it's really actually caused us to like, 
think twice before we respond because he's a little four-year-old boy, now five, almost six. Like the kid does some impulsive things that hurt other people and you wanna just intervene, right? And you know how like you have to sometimes rise above the common noise by yelling just to get their attention? Am I the only one? Okay, good, I'm the only one who does that, all right. Um, and anyway, so we had this moment though. So I, I go, bro, and he stops and he's crying and I'm trying to rationalize, you know? And then he says, he says this to me. He says, you're gonna be mad at me forever. I'm like, now my justice radars are off. I'm like, lie, like, you know, like untruth, you know, like, anyways, I'm obviously not in this moment, like shepherding this little boy's heart in the way he needs to be shepherded. And, and so I'm sitting down with him and I'm like, hey man, like I can be upset and love you all at the same time. Like just because I'm angry does not mean that I stop loving you, right? Like the love never goes away. This is permanent. It's like one of the most reliable things in your entire life. And just because I feel this over here doesn't mean this goes away. And, and, and in a four-year-old way, I feel like it really made some headway, right? Uh, and I'm like, I think this kid's getting it 20 years or so. We'll find out if he really got it. But, and I'm like, hey man, like are you, like when you're mad at me, like does your love stop? He's like, no. And I'm like, same, same thing. And it's interesting, though, because in the same way, we try to make God only capable of feeling one thing, and then we just transfer that to all of Scripture. It's actually a really interesting defense mechanism that people have so they don't have to face the full scope of who God is. I'll share with you another illustration. Um, I know for many of you, actually, this, this week has been nutso for you. Um, same in our family. The last couple days have been crazy for my wife, objectively. And, um, and so uh, when you own a flower shop and your pastor's wife and all this stuff happens, like life happens. And so we have like 60 prom people, a wedding and funerals and a bunch of events and they all converge in like a two day period. So life's crazy. And, and so here's what we know. We're not gonna, I won't see you for like three days. Cool, all right, all right. Like you'll come in after I'm in bed, you'll wake up early. Uh, I'll take care of the kids. We got this thing, okay? That's kind of like our MO. So Friday night she gets in. I am sleeping, I'm dreaming, it is lovely. Um, I am just in bed, uh, it's, it's 12.30 at night, and uh, my wife pulls up into the driveway, and I'll just share with you her experience, right? Um, she sees the gate open to our backyard. Now we have chickens, and this is how we keep coyotes or whatever out so they don't go in and destroy our chickens, and, and uh, raccoons can still get in, but this is the first defense against the big animals, right? So she's like, now it's dark, pitch black back there. And how many of you ladies at 12.30 night want to go into a pitch black neighborhood where there are coyotes possibly out? Anyone? Well, it gets better. She comes into the garage, and before you get into our kitchen, uh, there's a laundry room, and, and the laundry room door, I think, is open. It might just be unlocked, but I'm pretty sure it was open. Now, ladies, you have three sleeping children in your home. How many of you love coming home to a, 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 an open door in your house? Anybody? Anybody? How many of you want to kill me right now? You're like, you're a bad man. <laughs> Well, we're not done, right? She gets into the kitchen, and there is an ungodly amount of raw meat sitting on the counter. Why? She hadn't bought it. She didn't know where it came from. Just raw meat, lots of ribs, a big stack of like pork, whatever, just big, right? Tons of raw meat sitting there. And she's like, why is there all this raw meat on the kitchen counter? Great question. So she's, she's mad, understandably, right? Ladies, how many of you would be like a little upset? Like, I don't know where it came from, but I'm hungry and that's going bad. Like, you're just ruining it. That's like a lot of meat. Anyway, so she comes into the bedroom and I am sound asleep, delightfully so, having wonderful dreams. And she wakes me up and she says, um, excuse me, <clears throat> um, FYI. And I'm like, huh, what? Where are we? What's happening right now? Uh, FYI, the door is unlocked, the gate is open, and why is all this red meat sitting in there? I've had a really long day, like I'm basically done right now, and I'm like, Ray, raw meat, you know, 
refrigerator broke, freezer, I, I don't know, uh, you know, and she's like, go put the raw meat in the fridge, I want to know where this came from, I mean, I forgot to tell first service, by the way, where the raw meat came from, our neighbor's freezer broke, he bought all this raw meat, and so his daughter, who used to go to church here, was in our youth group, she came over and said, do you want a bunch of meat, it's all going to go bad, we have nowhere to put it, I'm like, sure, I dump it on the kitchen counter, and before I know it, I'm like, I'm tired, I'm gonna go to bed. Completely forgot about everything, everything there. She comes in and she's not happy to say the least, right? And, uh, and so I get up and, and she's there. Is this pretty accurate? You know, I'm a bad person. No, there's more to the story. <laughs> I don't, there's two doors wide open. Two doors wide open, all right, I, again. I don't, know, I don't know why, okay? I just know that about 11.30 at night or so, I'm like, I'm tired. And I went and laid down and I went unconscious and I don't know what happened <laughs> She's really angry right now. Just, just got all the emotions back again. Uh, anyways, uh, so she comes in and uh, she's upset. Now I want you to imagine in that moment, I looked at her and I said, you're going to be angry with me forever, right? You'd be like, what are you, what are you talking about? Like, don't, like, that's so offensive, actually, like, that I would be that trite, that I would have one experience, and then my entire life and every interaction would be defined by this singular moment and emotion as if I'm not capable of having multiple emotions simultaneously. Do you get the point? And, and it's interesting, because we look at God, and we're like, look, we see some really powerful emotions come out of God. We, some, we see some very powerful attributes, and sometimes they're, they're hard to talk about, and the anger and the wrath of God is one of these things, but we cannot be so simple and trite to minimize God to one emotion and say that's all he is. In fact, it's very possible that God could simultaneously feel extreme joy, extreme anger, and love all at the same time. Now, you may not be able to get that because we are more simple than God is, but you do realize that you have emotions because God has emotions, right? You do realize being, part, being made in the image of God is, is you feel and there are aspects of the God nature that are inside of you. And, and here's what I want to know. I want to know this. Is God angry? I want to know, is he angry at me? I want to know how angry is he? I want to know, how do, how do I get God to not be angry at me? How many of you want God to be opposing you and angry with you? Well, nobody does, right? One person raises their hand, but that's about it. The rest of us, we don't, we don't want that. And so it's a fair question. Like, what is the status of my relationship with God? Like, for Christians, I know I'm saved, but can God go into, like, anger mode and just lash out at me with wrath? Like, is that possible? And I think this is one of those discussions that we have to nail down. And then when you talk to people who are not Christians, it's a fair question. Is God angry? Is God angry with the non-Christian? Can I look at the non-Christian and say, God has no anger toward you at all. What Jesus did on the cross made all of God's anger for everybody, even Hitler, gone. He doesn't feel any of that anymore. It's all just kind of put aside. So open up with me, point number one in your notes, Genesis chapter six, is God angry? Um, we're in a series on Genesis chapters 1 through 11. And Genesis 1 and 2 we've seen so far, God created a beautiful, amazing, perfect world. Genesis 3 is the fall. Um, sin wrecks everything. And in Genesis 4, 5, and 6, we are watching the exponential and catastrophic destruction of the world, humanity, and creation because sin has infected every single part of it. You think the world is crazy now? We're going to get a glimpse in Genesis chapter 6 what the world could have looked like if God never, ever intervened with his restraining power. Like if God never, ever intervened and brought the grace of his restraint and law into this world, how bad 
could things have actually gotten? Now, one of the pieces of context we need to set up for you uh, is gonna be in Genesis chapter four. What you found in Genesis chapter four was a genealogy, it was a lineage. And it was the lineage of Cain. And the lineage of Cain culminated in serial, mur- serial murder. Uh, the lineage of Cain was a group of people and families from one generation to the next who rebelled against God, rejected God, and were evil. In Genesis chapter five, there's a new lineage that's picked up, a new genealogy. This is the genealogy of Seth. Seth and Cain were brothers, but they had two very different genealogies. And in chapter five, what you find is that the genealogy of Seth is the family that has been set apart to prepare a way for the Messiah. The Messiah would ultimately come through Seth's lineage. Now, the lineage of Seth was called to be set apart, to be the people of God. And you see that there are a handful of men like Enoch and Noah who loved the Lord and were faithful to him. Now, in Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 5, I need to warn you because there's going to be a lot of controversial subjects, um, meaning theologians and pastors have different positions on them, and they all seem to culminate in the first four or five verses here. So we're going to talk about Nephilim and fun stuff like that. If you don't know what that is, just wait because it's a trip and a half. All right, verse 1, here's what it says. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, The sons of God, they saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. So I want to draw your attention to two groups of people here. We have the sons of God, and we have the daughters of men. Uh, I I want to help you understand historically some different views of who these are. So let's talk about the sons of God. Um, Some theologians and pastors throughout church history have believed that the sons of God here are fallen angels. They are demons. Now, there's different ways they they manifest themselves. Some people believed that these demons took on human form and basically mated with women, and they created a hybrid, half-angel, half-human group of people called the Nephilim. Like, that's one view. And the reason they would say this, that the sons of God are angels, Angels is because in scripture, the sons of God is a term that can be used to refer to angels. The problem is these would be obviously demons. Um, and there's a, I'll be honest, there is a part of me that thinks that's really weird. And I want to see if there's a more logical, interpretive understanding of this phrase. And I actually think there is, and one that's very faithful to the text. The other option here, I would say the other dominant option, uh, is that the sons of God are those who are from the line of Seth, the genealogy, the lineage of Seth. Those who were created to be set apart for God. And what's interesting is that the daughters of man become those who are of the, who are, who are of the lineage of Cain. And uh, what you find here is, is that the sons of God, the sons of Seth, the lineage here, um, is supposed to be set apart. But I, I want to draw your attention to the verbs here, because in verse 2 it says, the sons of God, what, what's that word? Saw, and then the daughters of man were attractive, and then the sons of God did what? They took. They saw, and they took. Is this the behavior of a godly man? Not at all. Uh, There's something about now the culture, there's something about what's going on here, that even the sons of God, even the sons of Seth, even the righteous ones have been taken over by the evil culture. When I say evil, uh, um, whatever you're thinking in your brain, it's going to be exponentially worse. Okay? And so what happens is generation after generation, the sons of Seth walk away from the Lord and they are conformed to the image of the world. And now it seems they are taking women against their will, taking them into their life, impregnating them and causing them to raise their children, doing this as they want, as they whim. 
And now whatever's gonna happen here in verses one and two, here's what you have to understand. Whatever is happening is so frustrating to God that it pushes him over the edge. Whatever, whatever is going on here, uh, this is the final straw for God. And you're gonna see in a moment, we're gonna look at verse three in just a second here, but what you see in verse three is that finally whatever happens here pushes God to the earth and he determines in his heart he is going to obliterate all of mankind except for Noah. Uh, he, he is determined. This, whatever this is, this is very disgusting to God. And I wanna tell you why I think this is what's going on. Because later in Genesis, uh, you remember Abraham um, uh, and Lot, and they're trying to figure out if God's gonna destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And the question is, well, what if there's like five righteous people, right? And God's like, if there's five, we'll figure out how not to do this. And you get to the point where God says if there's only one left, his response is total annihilation. And this is what you see in Genesis. There's just one family, there's one guy, his name is Noah. The entire earth is corrupt, even to the point where the set-apart ones, the sons of God, the line of Seth, the lineage of the Messiah, um, even they are as bad as the sons of Cain. Let's look at verse three. You get to this um, word here. Uh, then, then the Lord said, this is a response to what happens in verse one and two. My spirit shall not abide in man forever. For he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. So there's two interpretive options. Um, basically, God says, look, here's the rule. Um, no longer is anybody gonna be able to live past 120 years old post-flood. Now, here's the deal. We know that isn't true because people after the flood lived longer than this. So there's gotta be a better interpretive option here. Here's the one that actually I think makes about both senses. Basically what God says is he looks at the state of humanity, he looks at the rebellion of mankind, and here's what he says, I'm done. Literally of the hundreds of thousands or millions of people, there is one left who is righteous, just one. And because of this, I'm going to give the world 120 years. There's gonna be 120 years. Now, if I were God, there's a very significant part of me that would have loved to intervene and poured out wrath immediately, right? If you saw this kind of evil, isn't there something about you that would want to destroy it all? But I'm telling you, in this passage, you're gonna see some incredibly compelling and beautiful attributes of God on full display. Here's what he says. He says, you know what? I'll give you another 120 years. And this is an opportunity for every single person far from God to repent, to turn. And he put a herald, a preacher in the middle of the world to create this enormous boat called an ark so that everybody who would ever see it would hear the truth. Judgment is coming. And anybody who wants on the boat can come in. Will you have faith in God? And there was not one single person in the entire world who heard that message and turned around even after 120 years. We get to verse four, and here, here's what God is doing in verses one, two, three, and four. He's building a case. So verses one and two, not only is the line of Cain evil, but even the godly ones have now turned to evil. Uh, in verse um, three, here's what you find, that there's no one left but Noah. And so God has put a ticking time bomb on the world, and he's gonna destroy everything, but he's creating a lifeboat. He's creating a way out for anybody who would trust in him. And then number four, we're gonna deal with a different category of people. This is called the Nephilim, and literally Nephilim means to fall, to throw down, or to raid. Let me, just, let me just back up and give you the big picture of who the Nephilim are likely. The Nephilim 
are a group of very large men, fierce warriors who are traveling throughout the world to raid and destroy. The Nephilim are no good, they are not righteous, uh, they are violent, and they are another illustration of the violence in this world. Uh, the Nephilim are such that if, if you and your tribe uh, tried to fight against them, there would be no ability to stand against them. Their sheer size and their strength gave uh, nobody an opportunity to really defeat them. So here's what happens in verse four. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, the days of evil, and also afterward. Uh, so afterward, they're still, after the flood, there still seemed to be a group of fierce, violent, large warriors. You get um, guy, uh, guys like Goliath from Gath, you remember that? Very large, eight feet tall, something like that, enormous. Um, and so we find also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. So there have been some... Uh, We'll just say there's a little bit of confusion on who the Nephilim are. And, and I'll, I'll give you again, do you hear all the controversial ideas coming up in Genesis 6, 1 through 4 already? Uh, here's another one. So he, here is one interpretive option for the Nephilim. Uh, the Nephilim are the hybrid offspring of demons and women. And uh, they were so enormous because of basically um, dark demonic DNA mixing with um, human women, and they created this awkward hybrid that really, really, really angered God. So a genetically distinct offspring of fallen angels and humans. That's, that's one idea. What's interesting is that if you just let the text be, and you don't transfer any ideas into it, um, there doesn't actually seem to be any necessary explicit connection between the kids they're having and the Nephilim. The Nephilim seem to be another historical reference uh, where God is saying, just so you guys know how evil this world is, the Nephilim were, were, were having their way with everybody. Uh, the Nephilim ran freely without restraint and were causing tons of evil and chaos in the world. Uh, and this happened when the sons of God, the, the, the people of God, the line of Seth were intermarrying with the line of Cain and and uh, these were the mighty men. Uh, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. It actually doesn't tell you that they're giants here necessarily. Um, that, that's not necessarily something that comes here. But this seems to be large, violent, fierce warriors. I think that's probably the best understanding of this. Um, it, there's a lot of conspiracy theory and ideas around this half-bred, half-angel, demon, whatever. But um, I just don't find it to be explicitly in the text. And it makes a lot more sense that this is a historical reference um, that, hey, the world was so evil that these evil, fierce, large, uh, undefeatable warriors were wreaking havoc on the world and killing women and children, destroying tribes and plundering and living with violence. And as a result, the world would get even more violent because the only way to protect yourself in a violent world is with more violence. And this seems to be the historical context, I think, of what's happening here. And so the Lord in verses one through four is trying to show you something. This is what the world looks like when there is no divine intervention. In verse five, we kind of zoom out and we just get this really, I think, um, helpful picture of the Lord's perspective. And here's what verse five says. The Lord, he saw. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I don't even think if we could, we could find categories to wrap our minds around this. Uh, the phrase that stuck out to me um, this week was the word continually. That they had this bad idea 
and it, it was evil, and the only ideas they ever had were bad, but they just kept executing evil ideas over and over and over and over. The evil was unrelenting, and it was just more evil on top of more evil on top of more evil. So as you wrestle with God's holy anger, um, here's something that I want you to be able to say when you leave here. If God wasn't angry, I would be concerned. Like, I want to know that when my God sees what's going on in this world, that he feels something. I need to know that he is not some deistic, apathetic God turning his head, cooking food, doing whatever he does, watching TV, while the whole world does what it does and all the unspeakable evil and pain and harm that are going on. I mean, don't you want to know your God feels? Don't you want to know that your God sees this and is genuinely and legitimately angry at the kind of atrocities that happen in this world? If he wasn't angry, I'd be upset. And yet, and yet this is deeply concerning for me because people want to say, God's love. And that's all he is. That's all he ever is. And then if God gets angry, well, how can you be angry and be a God of love? Uh, honestly, when somebody wounds someone you love, I'll show you how love turns into anger. I'll, see you how the, I'll show you how the two are very compatible with each other. And one of the things I want to do is just kind of dismantle this false notion that God can only be one attribute. Oh no, he's multiple attributes. And if God wasn't angry, I would be deeply, deeply concerned. Now, now here's the deal. This is where I want to give you a perspective on God's anger. And I think this is where, if you slow down, God can really surprise you and also instruct each one of us in this room. Let's look at what happens to verse six. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Now, you're gonna wanna get stuck in the word regretted, um, as if somehow uh, God was like, oh no, I didn't see that one coming. Man, if I could take that back, I would, right? Not the point, not the point at all. Uh, in fact, um, that is not what the text is trying to get to you. What the, what the text is trying to show you is the heart of God. It's trying to show you that God feels deeply. I mean, think about the emotion that you have. Whatever it is, pick one. God feels it more deeply than you do. You think about sadness, God's capacity for sadness goes way deeper than yours ever could. Joy, his capacity for joy and happiness is far greater than anything you and I could ever experience. In fact, as we said earlier, we're emotional creatures because we're made in the image of God and God has put his image on us. We are reminded of his nature and character every time you feel. And I think sometimes in the world, like we treat God like he's like some kind of robotic automaton, like oh, I feel I'm now angry, I will execute wrath on all of humanity, right? That's not how he is. He's a person, and we are persons because he is person. Do you see that? And so what, what scripture is doing, it's pulling back the curtain and giving you this beautiful glimpse into the heart of God. I wanna ask you a question. What emotion is missing from this? Anger. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. We're gonna get there. But I want you to notice this. Before God is angry, he's broken. Before God is angry, he's grieved. Before God pours out wrath, he sheds tears. Isn't this instructive for us? You look at the world, the world is crazy, politicians are doing nutty things, and we're like, 
I want to be mad. It's interesting. Like, God waited 120 years to pour out anger. And for 120 years, he left the door to the boat open. Time, judgment is coming. It's coming. He put a preacher in place to declare what would be going on. It's so instructive to me that before God goes to vengeance and wrath, his heart breaks first. Why are you invited behind the scenes? Like, it's weird. For us, um, it's, it's called vulnerability. When people see sensitive parts of us, they see grief and pain and hurt. We don't like to show that. Those might be emotions of weakness. Um, God's being particularly vulnerable and he's not embarrassed of any of this because every attribute of God is glorious. And you are seeing perfect grief, perfect regret, perfect sadness. There is no flaw in it. And I really do just love that God shows us, look, there's, there's a lot of things that should legitimately make you angry and they make me angry too. Hold on, but they make me sad first. Then the anger comes. I, I wanna give you just a broader vision of, of anger here. Um, God's anger at sin is a few things and here's a couple. It is always justified, reasonable, holy, strategic, grace-filled, and relational. It's always justified. There's never a moment where God acts out in anger and he's like, you know what, that was a little bit over the top. Sorry, guys. Like Jesus is going in and he flips over the, uh, the money changers' tables. And blah, right? Jesus never goes back and he's like, oh man, I don't know if I could justify doing that. That was a little bit over the top, right? No, it, it's totally justified. There's never an overreaction from God. It's always reasonable. There's always an explanation for what God does, what he allows, ordains, or permits out of his anger. It's always reasonable. It's always holy. Like every time God responds in anger, there was never a better option to respond in a different way. Like if there were a million possible responses, God's response is always the right one. It's always the pinnacle response. Like there's never a moment where somebody could say, hey, uh, Jesus, I think there's a better way to do that. Like maybe you should have tried it this way. He's like, oh no, um, I, I, I literally in a split second calculated all possible reactions in that moment and chose the absolute perfect best one. And it was flawless and it was sinless and there was no ill motivation and it. it was always for the glory of God and the good of his people. And so he's strategic. Uh, you always find that no matter how severe the anger of God is, the plan of redemption is always still in play. That from the foundations of the world, a lineage, a genealogy was plucked out and chosen. And even though God destroys every human being on the in the world, that lineage, that genealogy uh, from Adam to Seth all the way through Noah is still preserved in the world. It's always grace-filled because even before there is a judgment, there is always an extended hand and good news proclaimed to people that the doors are open to the boat, jump on in. Always. And it's always relational. I'm sorry, but if God is angry at you, there's no way that's not relational. There's no way that it's just like, he's just angry at, his, at my sin, but not me. If God's angry, he threatens to blot people out. I'm sorry, that's deeply personal. And so we love to say things, God, God hates the sin, not the sinner. God's angry at the sin, but not the sinner. And I'm like... I'm not sure if that's the whole truth, actually. Um, you do read in scripture that there seems to be a lot more to this. And, uh, but what I want you to get big picture is this, is that God's anger, it's always, always at sin. It's justified, reasonable, holy, strategic, grace-filled, and relational. Here's what verse seven says. So now the Lord says, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Are we at anger and wrath now? Right, right? Now he can get there. But he, but he just commits himself to it he doesn't act on it. Do you see the reserve? Do you see the patience? Uh, how many of us could be instructed by God's reserve, patience, and compassion? 
I would say all of us. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. We're going to call this the sorrow sandwich because you have sorrow on one side and then anger and then sorrow. What's the dominant thing that the text wants you to take away that God is feeling about this? Sorrow. Isn't that interesting? And yet when you hear people talk about this, you're like, oh, what kind of God would do that? Well, sometimes we create these caricatures, we impose them on the text, and they're not true. So let's, let's discuss a moral quandary for a moment. Um, I call this the, the Hitler hypothetical. Ready for it? The Hitler hypothetical. You could go back in time, and uh, you're at the moment where Hitler is about to be born, and you have an option. Kill him or let him live. What do you do? So you put this in your brain. Kill a million people now and spare a billion people later. Spare one, billion, one million people now and allow them to kill a billion people later. Like, like, this is the hypothetical. What do you do? If you were God, you were the author of life and of death, and you were given sole jurisdiction to determine how long people will live, and you have this option, what do you pick? It's interesting because people think when they, when they hear about the state of the world pre-fall that it's just like it is today. No, 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 no. No, no, no. It was devastating. It was, you wouldn't live. You wouldn't make it. And I think this is, this is one of these hypotheticals that just says, well, what would you do? And it's interesting because what I find with most people is they would go back and kill Hitler. I don't know what you would do, but this is what I find when I ask most people. And it's interesting because what's at stake in the flood right now is enormous. If God does not deal with this once and for all, the Messiah will never be born. The lineage will kill itself. These people will just kill and kill and kill and kill and kill and kill, and the glory of God is not going to be able to be seen in this world in the way that God intends it. It's an impossibly difficult situation, and so I think when people look back to events like this and they look at the wrath of God, they put them in this small little box, and I'm just like, listen, there's more to this story, and, and, and Village, you hear me say this all the time, but if you were in God's shoes and you were perfectly holy and you were perfectly righteous and there was no flaw in you whatsoever and you were the pinnacle of all wisdom and love and insight, you would do what God did. That's hard to say. You would do what God did. So whenever we read stuff like this, I just give God the benefit of the doubt and I say, I don't know all the facts, I don't know how it all works, but here's what I know, if I had your heart, and if I was as slow to anger as you were, if I was as patient as you were, if I was as open-handed as you were, I would probably do the exact same thing that you do. Let's make this more personal. Let's go to point number two in your notes. How do I know if God is angry with me? How do I know this? So I want to give you a simple answer for the Christian. The moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ, every ounce of God's anger has been redirected to the cross. I need you to hear me so that there is not one ounce of God's wrath left for you, period, uh, at all. So you have two options in this world. Either you pay for your sin or Jesus does. And when somebody comes to Christ, this is their way of saying, uh, let Jesus take it for me. And so if you are a believer in God, there is not one ounce of the wrath of God left for you. And so I can look at you and I can say, Christian, God is not angry with you. And even though he might allow things that you hate, he might discipline you severely, he may even expose you publicly, he loves you. He is a good father 
who is motivated to form Christ in you and to kill sin before sin tries to kill you. There's not one ounce of anger and wrath left. Is there disappointment and sadness and grief and frustration? I'm sure, yes. But listen, the wrath of God has been, here's the word, propitiated. It's a theological word, propitiation, which means it has been appeased. It has been totally, totally made right. There's none left because it was all put onto Jesus Christ. Now I want to talk to those of you who are not Christians. There's a part of me that wants really badly to look at you and say, God's not mad at you. God loves you. Unfortunately, when I read the New Testament, you have words like unreconciled, enmity, hostility, the wrath of God is being poured out against all unrighteousness on those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You get, you get the point? Like, there's a part of me that wants to just be like, I really want to make the gospel easy for you, but it's not. And so I can look at somebody, but if I tell them this, God's angry at you. Here's what I know. It completely overstates the point because they're not hearing, but he also loves you at the same time. Remember, God is not emotionally simple. He is complex and nuanced. So God can look at you and say, we are unreconciled. Between you and me is hostility and enmity. But I want you to know, I love you. My hand is exposed to you. The door to the boat is open. Walk in, it's through faith in Jesus Christ. And the two have to exist simultaneously. And when we say one to the neglect of the other, we lose the whole message. Why do you need a savior if he's not mad? So you can have your best life now? No, you need a savior because you and God are unreconciled. And that doesn't change his love for you. What it means though is that you have a serious problem and the two coexist. And the only way that the wrath of God is gonna be taken off of you, the anger of God, is through faith in Jesus. And the moment you place your faith in Jesus, the anger of God is propitiated, it is satisfied, it is appeased, it is transferred to the cross of Christ and there is none left for you for all of eternity. Give me that any day. Oh wait, by the way, he also gives you his Holy Spirit, adopts you to his family and gives you all of his resources and says, I am covenanting myself to you for all of eternity. You can't get away from me. And I'm going to change you from the inside out and make you better than you ever could have been on your own. I'm going to destroy sin that wants to destroy you and I'm going to protect you. Like, give me that any day, any day. And this is where we step back. Is God angry at me? If you're a believer, I can look at you and say, no. Uh, do you make God grieve? <laughs> Parents? Right? Why do you feel that way? It's the image of God on you. Let's look at verse eight. Let's see what set Noah apart. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Remember the generations is a huge theme here in, in Genesis. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Was Noah perfect? Well, you keep, we're going to have an expose on Noah here in the upcoming weeks. It's embarrassing to be Noah sometimes, okay? Um, let's, let's read Hebrews 11. Here's what Hebrews 11 says, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, Noah constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this, by his faith, which manifested itself in the building of the ark, by this, he condemned the world. He condemned the world. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Was the door open? Sure was. Judgment is coming. Nobody was going to walk through those doors except for his children and their wives. And he became heir of the righteousness that comes by what? Faith. Noah 
was set apart because he had faith. He trusted in God. The wrath of God was appeased. The wrath of God was put away from him. And Noah was made right with God, not because he was better. He was better because he had faith. Do you see the difference? This is what I love about Noah is that what set him apart, the reason God wasn't pouring out his anger and wrath on Noah was because Noah was set apart because of his faith. We'll go to verse 10. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We're going to get more to them in upcoming weeks. Verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. Again, the Lord is making the case for the generations that come after the flood, reading it, trying to help them understand this was not an overreaction. This was preservation of the human race and the lineage of the Messiah. And God saw, God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. There was no exceptions. God wants you to know this. When he judged the world, it was righteous and just, and he gave them 120 years to repent and make it right, and not a single soul on the planet decided to walk through the doors of that boat except for Noah and his family. In verse 13, it ends like this. God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. Why? For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. I want to close with three questions. So what do we learn about ourselves? Here's the first. I am not better than the line of Cain. So I really, really want to read Genesis 6, 1 through 5 with a haughtiness, like a how could you? You're so disgusting. I would never do that. I mean, I actually have no idea what I would do. Because A, I've been saved since I was a little kid. I've had the Holy Spirit in my life and I measure the protection of God. B, we grew up in a culture that, it, I mean, how, how, we can't even begin to articulate the benefits of a Judeo-Christian ethic globally and how that has mitigated violence and so much of the atrocities of this world. Whether you're a Christian or not, it's in your blood, it is in your heart, and it is a protective mechanism right now. Like, this world could be a lot worse without that reality. I don't even know, but here, here's what I do know. I do know that if I grew up in that culture at that time without the Holy Spirit, I have a hunch that I would be just as self-preserving and just as violent and just as vile. And what it makes me do, do is to step back and say, God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to live in this time at this place. Thank you for plucking me out. Thank you for not just plucking me out in genealogy, but actually intervening in my life and giving me faith. Thank you for that because I am, I am no better. It also tells us about ourselves that it is possible to be righteous in a very, very depraved and fallen world. I mean, our, our kids and my grandkids one day, they're gonna grow up in a world that's darker than this, but here's what I know. If you got the Holy Spirit in you, you can overcome, right? If you have the Holy Spirit in you, you can thrive for the Lord. They could do whatever they want to you, but you can persevere because the power of the Holy Spirit inside of a person is far greater, far greater than the evils out there. Will they tempt God's people? Will we struggle? Possibly, but will we overcome? You better believe it, because this is what God's doing. He's building a church, and he's building a people. He's preserving a people who are set apart for him, and he's doing it by the power of the Holy Spirit. I can tell you, Village Church, uh, God gives you the ability 
to be righteous light in a dark world by the power of the Holy Spirit. What do we learn about sin? Question number two. What we see is that sin consumes us. And when it's done consuming us, it turns us around so that we consume one another. And given time and unchecked from generation to generation, sin becomes exponentially worse. And this is why I'm so grateful for Jesus because I would be a victim to sin and at the same time choose it if Jesus hadn't intervened in my life. This is why when we find unrepentant sin, we're like, kill it, kill it. It wants to destroy you and undo you from the very foundations of who you are. Finally, number three, what do we know about Jesus? Here's what we know. Even though judgment is imminent for Noah and the people of his day, and judgment is imminent for us and the people of our day, is it not? The door is always open and the hand of Jesus is still extended to anybody who would place their faith in him. Isn't that amazing? We deserve hell. We deserve wrath now. And he waits. He waits. If you came to Christ 20 years ago, aren't you really glad that he didn't come back and judge the world 21 years ago? Right? And right now, today, someone's trusting in Christ. Right now, right now, right now, probably every second of the day, someone in this world is placing their faith in Jesus Christ. And God is still moving and still drawing and still winning people left and right, left and right. Every second he does not intervene. This is what he's doing. He's saving people. We're gonna turn our attention now to communion. And um, my desire is that you would see the convergence here in the cross of wrath, anger, and love. So on the cross, this is the greatest outpouring of wrath the world has ever seen, maybe the world will ever see. On a physical level, it looked like a man dying, but the wrath of God poured out on the body, soul, and emotions of Jesus Christ so that those who would place their faith in Jesus would never have to bear that wrath on our body and our soul and our emotions. Like what an amazing reality God has done for us. And Jesus did that because he loves us. The father gave the son because he's a good father, because he loves us. Do you see this convergence of wrath and love on the cross in this beautiful way? And the open hand of God to every single person on the planet saying, place your faith in Jesus Christ. It's open, the doors are open for anybody who wants to come in. And so as we partake of communion, if you are a believer in Jesus, my prayer for you every single week is that the, your awe at what God has done for you and your gratitude of what he has plucked you out of would be fresh and renewed every single week that we come to this communion table. For those of you who have never trusted in Jesus Christ, uh, literally the hands of Jesus are extended to you. The door to the ark is open. Come in through faith. Believe in him and you will be saved and given the Holy Spirit. Today is the day. And some of you know, you know, like I need to trust in Christ. You know this. And there's these little prideful voices in your brain that say, oh, what will people think of me? I'll do it later. I don't know. That's going to be kind of weird. Like, no, today is the day. You will not regret placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. This will be the day that turns everything around and you and God will be officially with finality reconciled and all the anger of God, righteous anger, your sin will be transferred to Jesus Christ. Take that. Like, that's amazing. That's amazing.